Right, okay, our <coughs> second uh, talk on, on Titus. We, we saw last time that uh, Titus was not, um, as is commonly understood, the pastor of a church in Crete. Um, scripture knows nothing of that, you know, sort of the idea of someone coming in from the outside to become the permanent leader of the church. That isn't what Titus was doing, isn't what Timothy was doing. And of course, the fact that Timothy and Titus have called the pastoral epistles in our Bibles, they, you know, they kind of almost you know, paint, paint the picture you know, that these guys were the minister of, you know, sort of like the ministers of churches. And of course, the New Testament knows no such thing. Um, and we saw that what Titus was, he was an apostle. And he was on uh, Paul's apostolic team. And um, obviously we, we saw that uh, Paul, uh, in, in Acts 27, uh, we see that Paul was very briefly in Crete. But that was real quick and there was no kind of indication that Titus was, was with him. So clearly, later on, after the chronology of the Acts of the Apostles is, uh, is over, that clearly later on, Paul and Titus, and probably others on the team as well, were in Crete. Obviously, people had come to know the Lord and needed to be formed into churches. And so Titus was left there by Paul in order to do that, to be leading the churches until they had their own internal leadership. And that's what we're going to be concentrating on tonight. And in many ways, uh, you know, sort of Timothy was doing the, the same sort of thing um, in a Ephesus, although with um, some certain changes, uh, you know, a few differences that we saw when we uh, did um, his letter not that long ago. And um, so basically we've got Titus and he's there in Crete with all these believers and he's there to lead them until such time as they don't need anyone from the outside and are able to uh, have everything that they need amongst themselves, okay. So last, last week was really the introduction, but now we're, we're going to do the rest of uh, chapter 1 tonight and just start with verse 5. And he says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he says, look, you're there there are things that need to be made straight, to straighten out. And this, this, this word translated, straighten out, is epidiorthu. And it's, it's from the Greek um, orthos, which means straight. You know, like a straight line, straight as a die. And it's actually where our word orthodox comes from. So we talk about the orthodox faith. And it means, you know, being absolutely straight down the line. And so really, what's happening here is that Paul is saying, look, there are things... Uh, off the straight and narrow, and you need to be bringing them back into line. Okay, and Paul says he says straighten out what was left unfinished, and that word is the Greek word lipo, and it's simply from the verb to leave, and it means something that is lacking. Uh, you know, so I mean, if I, if I left now, you'd be lacking me, you know, if you see what I mean. It's something that isn't completed yet. And so what Paul is saying to Titus, and we're going to see that a big part of this is the whole thing about raising up elders in these churches, that, that Titus has got to finish something that is incomplete, uh, a place where these churches are going to come to, where they need to get to, they're not there yet, but it's Titus's function to uh, help them to, uh, to get to that place. So this is a straightening out, you know, it's kind of getting everything absolutely in line as it ought to be, okay. 
and uh, he, he immediately goes on and he says, and the thing that you've got to do towards this is that you need to appoint elders. And that's really what we're going to be concentrating on tonight. Now, firstly, let's just remind ourselves, uh, you know, we've done, uh, you know, sort of quite a lot of this in the Church Life series, but just remind ourselves this whole thing about elders, okay? Because basically, what we've got in Scripture is that we have synonymous terms. Um, the Greek words that we're interested in now are presbuteros, which is the Greek word for an elder, episkopos, which is the Greek word that gets translated either bishop or overseer, depending on which translation of the Bible you're using. And then the third word we're interested in is, is poimeno, which gets translated pastor or shepherd. Okay. Now, if you, if you go to Acts 20, let's just see these, these words being used. And uh, Acts chapter 20, and this is Paul's um, like farewell kind of gathering with the um, Ephesian elders, okay, and uh, we're going to read from verse 17, um, and then we're going to go down to verse uh, 28, but first of all, verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Now, that's the word presbuteros, and it simply means elder, it means an older man, okay. But now go to verse 28. So he's saying this to men whom the Bible refers to as elders. Now listen to what he says. He says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or bishops. That's episkopos. So immediately we see synonymous terms. These are the elders, and Paul says that you have been given the uh, task of having been made overseers. And then immediately after that he says, be shepherds, or pastors, that's poimeno, of the Church of God. So again, what we see here is simply synonymous terms for the same people. Elders, bishop, overseer, depending on translation, and pastor, shepherd, depending on translation, are synonymous terms for the same group of people. And basically, what you've got here are different aspects. They're synonymous terms, different terms for the same people, because it brings out different aspects of basically what they are. And if you think about it, elder, an older man, that speaks of maturity. And of course, in elder, and that's what they're normally called, you know, the, you know, the normal word used to describe this function in the Bible is elder. And of course, this is the qualification of an elder, maturity, an older man. And we're going to be spending uh, some time on that a little bit later on tonight. So with elder, you've got the qualification. With bishop or overseer, you, you have there the function of elders relative to the corporate church. Because if you think about it, you oversee a corporate group of people. So bishop or overseer, episkopos, which just means to watch over, all right, to, you know, to watch over, that is their function relative to the corporate church. And poimeno, pastor or shepherd, which means to, means to feed and nurture, speaks of their function relative to the church, but not corporately, but the pastoral role of looking after individuals as individuals within the church. Okay, now let's just see that again. Go to the epistle of uh, Peter, Peter's letter, his, his first letter. Um, 
and uh, find um, chapter 5 and, and verse 1. And we're going to see exactly the same thing here. And he says, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Now, remember last, last week, we looked at the different types of apostle, or at least a distinction between them, in the sense that you had people like Paul and his team, and they were what I called hardcore apostles. All the time traveling, uh, not at a church at home, because they lived wherever they were planting new churches. And we saw that what those guys had in common, Paul, Timothy, Titus, Barnabas, other people on, on Paul's team, we saw that what they all had in common was that they were single men. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? Because how could you do that if you had a family? You'd have to, by definition, either neglect your family, you'd be away from home all the time, or you'd be dragging a family around all the time, never having settled roots, and that's not good for family life. And so therefore, what we see is what I call the hardcore apostles, uh, you know, like Paul and that, who were all the time traveling, they were single men. <clears throat> and of course, the other thing about them is they traveled in a team. Because they were never part of a church back home, they were all the time planting new churches. So they were always in the position of being leaders, which is not good for you. So if we ask the question, so where was their accountability? Well, it was because they travelled in a team. They were like a little mini church as a team, if you see what I mean. So there was still that accountability. There wasn't any lone wolf stuff. Now, Peter, in contradistinction, Peter, he was also an apostle. He could go preach the gospel, see people converted, and then form them into churches and nurture them. But the difference between Peter is that Peter was a married man. So what couldn't Peter do that single apostles could? He couldn't be away all the time, could he? So therefore, we see with Peter, he travelled some, but most of the time, where was he? He was at home. Now, how do we know that? Well, because he was an elder in a church. You're not going to recognise someone as an elder if they're never there, if you see what I mean. So therefore, we see that there are other apostolic ministries which are at home most of the time, and therefore just part of whatever church they're part of, and obviously, you know, sort of like functioning as an elder, but they travel out some, and of course that's the category that I'm in, you know, obviously because I've got a family. And so here we see Peter referring to himself here as an elder, and of course neither Paul, nor Timothy, nor Titus, nor any of those guys, they weren't elders, of course they weren't. They were apostles, slightly different. And, uh, okay, so we've seen that, but here's the point, he says, to the elders among you. So now, in this letter, he now addresses the elders. One of the very few times that the New Testament ever directly addresses elders. Right. And uh, look at what he says. He says, be shepherds of God's flock. What's that? Poimeno. Be pastors. Be shepherds of God's flock. So again, the synonymous term. And he says, that is under your care, serving as overseers, episcopos or bishops. So again, what we're seeing here is that we simply have synonymous terms for the same people. An elder is a bishop, overseer is a pastor, shepherd. It's as simple as that, okay. Right, so that's elders and obviously, you know, sort of like, you know, raised up from within the churches because that's, that's the very thing that Titus is there to do, that obviously these guys um, if, if someone is recognised as an elder, then obviously they're recognised by the church of which they are a part. 
So again, this idea of you bringing permanent leadership from the outside is nowhere found in Scripture. Ministries may come in from the outside and take a leadership role, but it is only ever temporary. And any time that happens, it's only to strengthen that church so that it doesn't need to be relying on outside ministries, okay? And, uh, right, so now, and we've really got to home in on this, and there's going to be some surprises tonight, and, uh, you know, stuff that uh, just doesn't really come out in the way that our Bibles uh, translate the Greek, okay? Because he says, um, I've left you to straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. Now, it's that word, a point, that we need to um, concentrate on a bit. Because, and of course it's perfectly disastrous, because when you get the King James Version, you often get that translating ordain. And of course these phrases, these words, they're so loaded with connotations. I mean, all ordain, ordination, priesthood, of course that's nonsense. Leadership is not by priesthood, of course it's not, where every believer is a priest. No, leadership is not by priesthood. But even with the word appoint, <coughs> it's, it's a very kind of, again, it's still very loaded. It, it's, it's a very hierarchical word. And I want to demonstrate to you that to that extent it's not a very good um, translation, okay. Uh, because it paints this picture and you get this, you know, across the board in the Kingdom of God in churches. The idea that you've got, right, the apostle who plants the church. So, of course, <clears throat> he's the big man. He's the big cheese. He is in charge. He is the authority. But then eventually what he does is that he will appoint other men on the local scene. And of course, they are being appointed to be over or in charge of that church. But of course, all the time they're under his authority. You see what I mean? So you get this pyramid idea that you've got the apostle at the top of the pyramid, and then you get kind of like the local elders. And th you know, then of course you've got the plebs under them. And it's got this whole idea of positional authority, hierarchical authority. And I want to show you that that isn't uh, what Paul is, is actually communicating here. Now, <clears throat> the actual, let's start with the Greek word itself. The actual Greek word here is kathistemi. All right. Now, it comes from two other Greek words, kata, which means either down or over against, all right, and histomy, which is the verb that means to cause to stand or to set. So if you, you, know, if you set a fence post in concrete, it would be histomy, or to cause to stand. You're, you're the reason why something or someone is standing. Now, for that reason, this Greek word can legitimately be used of instances when someone is appointed to a position of authority. So for instance, on numerous occasions in the New Testament, it's used of people being appointed to be rulers or appointed to be kings. So it's certainly true that kathistomy can be used to denote appointing someone to a position of authority. But here's the point it doesn't necessarily mean that. So, if someone was being appointed to a position of authority, then this word would be the one to use. But on the other hand, if someone was being appointed to something that didn't mean having authority over people, this word would also be used then. Let me actually demonstrate that to you. Go to Acts chapter 3. We've obviously seen this in detail many times in the past. 
and what I take to be the uh, the raising up of deacons. You'll remember that the uh, the the the, the Greek-speaking widows were being left out of the collections, and uh, you know the apostles just couldn't keep up with everything that that needed to be done. Okay, and so they're kind of falling short, and there's this problem arising in the churches, and. Um, so, so let's read from verse 2. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. And that's the verb where we get deacon from. Acts 6. Did I say chapter 3? I'm sorry. Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter... Spot, spot the deliberate mistake. Just, just testing. Just testing. Yes. Yes, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, which is where we get the word deacon from. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, did anyone spot the appointing of them to a position of authority there? Because the word kathistomy is in there. What's happening here is that Peter actually makes this proposal and everyone agrees to it. So they say, right, choose seven men. Now, the whole point is, it's the gathered body that's doing the choosing. And this is going to be a deacons. So we're not even talking about elders. There is nothing here at all of anyone being appointed to any position that could in any way be thought of to be authoritative. So where is the word kathistomy in here? It's, we will turn this responsibility over to them. That's the same word. There's nothing of authority or positional authority or hierarchy in its use there. So what I'm showing you is that whereas this word appoint or kathistomy that gets, you know, sort of translated appoint, whereas it can indeed be used of appointing someone to be a ruler of a nation, it can also be simply appointing someone to a particular task. You know, as indeed, you know, if you've got three kids, you may appoint one of them to do the dustbins, another one to wash the kitchen floor. You see what I mean? You're hardly, you know, putting them in a position of authority. You're simply saying this is a task that you're going to do. And it doesn't inherently carry the idea of authority at all. Let me show you some other places where this same word is used in the New Testament. Go to Acts chapter 17. Again, the main point here is that when we get this word appoint used of elders, it does not in itself denote appointment to a position of authority. But obviously, authority, decision-making, lies with the gathered church. So Acts 17 and verse 15. And we read this. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Now could you even guess which, where Cathistomy is in there? It's the men who escorted. That's Cathistomy. Does that mean they were in authority over Paul, telling him what to do? No, they were simply the men who went along with him. They escorted him. It was a task that fell to them. So that's all this word means in that context. Go to, uh, to Romans chapter 5. I'm labouring this because a lot of people make a very big deal of this. Oh, look, elders appointed. You know, almost as if this is something, you know, and look, it's the apostles who are appointing them as well, and we'll be having a look at that in a minute. And, um, yeah, Rome, Romans 5 and verse 19. And 
For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, kathistomy is in that sentence twice, and it's be made. Simply means it, meaning to cause to be. That's all it means. So, in the sense that, when we're talking about the appointing of elders, we're simply talking about a description of the process whereby people are recognised as being elders. Let's just do one last one. Go to 2 Peter again. Oh, no. Back to Peter, but 2 Peter this time. 2 Peter 1 and verse 8. And uh, he says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where's Cathistomy? Keep you. Remember, it means to cause to stand. That's all it means. And so, I've simply been demonstrating to you that although it seems that Titus is going to appoint elders, now, if you've already got preconceived ideas in your mind about hierarchical authority and pyramids and structures of authority, and most Christians have that preconceived idea in their minds because that's how the churches that they're part of operate. Whatever way you cut it, whether it's Catholic down to independent, charismatic or Pentecostal, it's all based on having somewhere along the line the big leader and someone to whom, you know, under whose authority you're thought to be as the leader. And so therefore, as Christians read this verse, they do have this, you know, sort of like, you know, almost like the, you know, the, the bishop laying hands on the new priest or something like that. I'm just showing you, it doesn't in the Greek have any of those connotations at all. It simply means causing people to be recognised as elders, okay? Simply handing over the responsibility of a task that the church of which they are a part have recognised that they are called to. That's all it is. Now, at this point, we just need to bear in mind that there's another place where the Bible talks about appointing elders, and it's in Acts of the Apostles. So we better have a look at that verse as well. Okay, and it's in Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. And it's in verse 23. We'll start reading from uh, just the middle of uh, verse 21. They returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. What's happening here is the apostolic team is returning to churches it has planted in the past, all right? Returning to them because it's time for those churches to recognise elders, all right? So the apostles are going back to them. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. Now, that sounds pretty hierarchical, doesn't it? So what does the Greek say? Well, interesting, interestingly, the word appoint here is not kathistomy. It's an entirely different word, okay? And the actual Greek word here is kairotonio. And it, it comes from two other words. K 
Kaya, which is the hand, and Taino, which is the verb to stretch. It means to stretch out your hand. And this Greek word was used of voting in the Athenian legislature. It means to vote. Now, what a tremendous difference in our understanding of that verse. We've suddenly gone from the apostles appointing elders, conjuring up the idea, we'll tell you who the elders are. You know, can you see what I mean? As if it's up to the apostles who the elders are. We've suddenly come from that to realising, when we look at the Greek verse here, that what we're talking about, I mean, you know, I don't think they actually held ballots, but what we're talking about here, the apostles are returning to churches that they brought into being and that they nurtured. All right, so they, there's a personal relationship between them and the people in these churches. They're returning to these churches some months or maybe a year or so later, all right? They're going back to those churches, all right? And what's happening is the apostles are taking part in the process with the church of recognizing who the elders are. You see what I mean? So what we've gone from is the idea of the apostles saying, well, we'll tell you who your elders are, as if it's down to the apostles to tell the churches who the elders are, to the fact that they are simply part of that recognizing process. Do you see the difference? And the difference really is as wide as the world. So what we've got here, and this is why I use the terminology of recognizing elders rather than appointing elders. It's much better terminology. It much more fairly and properly represents what we've actually got in the Greek in the New Testament. So the whole point is, yeah, apostles, when they've started churches, okay, when it comes time for those churches to be developing an internal leadership whereby they do not need the apostles anymore. You see the whole point? There's a recognizing process that goes on. The church itself recognizes any elders it believes is being raised up, but the apostles play a part in that as well. They're part of the decision-making process. Remember, we're only talking here of apostles in regards to churches that they themselves brought into being. Can you see the point? It's based on relationship that they have with these people. After all, they led all these people to the Lord in the first place. Okay, So it's purely relationship-based, and it's a, a, a sharing together in recognizing who the Lord is raising up to be elders in a church. Okay. So I think that, that, that dispenses with, with this kind of this wrong picture or, or wrong thinking that people have when it comes to the actual appointing of eldership. Now it's certainly true that we see in Acts 14 that once these men were recognized by the church in conjunction with the apostles, the apostles laid hands on them to pray that the Lord would anoint them with the Holy Spirit to perform that function. But the point is, that is the apostles laying hands on them, but it's a shared decision as to who is being recognized to actually be the elders. Okay, And of course, in a situation where a church has not been brought into being in this way by hardcore apostles, having preached the gospel to you, you've got converted, they've, they've nurtured you, they've led you for a while and then moved on. If a church started other than that, then there's absolutely no part for apostles to play in the recognizing of elders, because there's no apostle involved in that church. Can you see the whole point? And again, some churches get the idea, we can have elders, we need to get an apostle in. 
Well, suddenly you're back to the idea of hierarchy again. No, the point about the apostles and these churches is that these were the guys who brought these churches into being. Can you see the point? It's all based on relationship. So anyway, we've 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 dispensed with um you know this uh, you know the the idea that appointing elders is you know like the you know the big leaders tell you who the elders are or stuff like that. It isn't like that at all. Elders are raised up and they're recognised by the church, okay? And so this is what he's saying. That's why I left you in Crete, Titus, to, you know, to sort of lead, lead the church, help them in the raising up and the recognising of elders, okay? Now, having done this, <clears throat> Paul then talks about, okay, so what directions do you give people so that they can understand and look at if God is raising anyone up? What are the qualifications? If the Lord is raising up someone into the function of eldership, what is it that you're looking for? Now, we've, we've in the Church Life series, we, we've done the qualifications of an elder in great detail because there's what Paul writes to Titus here and there's a longer and a more detailed list that he writes to Timothy. Now, in the Church Life series, we looked at both of them and put the whole picture together. Obviously, here tonight, we're only going to be doing what he writes to Titus, okay? But uh, he, <clears throat> he starts off, he says, an elder must be blameless. We've seen this before. Not blameless as in absolutely perfect. That would be ridiculous. But blameless in the sense of what Paul's now going to write. So, you know, so don't think that, you know, you're looking for someone to be blameless in the sense that you can't fault them in anything at all. That's ridiculous. I mean... Jesus is like that. No one else is. So when it talks about that a man must be blameless, you then get a list that defines this blamelessness that Paul is talking about. Okay, And the very first thing he says is, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now there's more on this in the... Uh, in, um, the Timothy list, but suffice to say, top of the list, absolute heart of the matter is that an elder, his family life, is going to be as it should be. And of course, this, this comes first because it is the most important aspect at all. In Timothy, Paul underlines the basic principle that if a man has not led and managed and nurtured his own family properly, how could he possibly do so for the wider family of God, the church? And so that's the principle. So obviously it's got to be the case that when you look at the quality of his marriage, his relationship with his wife, and his relationship with his children, his parenthood, is, is, ev is everything as it should be? If it's not, if family life isn't in order, then obviously this is not a man who can be recognised to be an elder. It's obvious. If he hasn't got that right, okay, all these years, how on earth is he, could he get right playing a part in leading the wider family of God, i.e. the church? He just can't do it, okay. So that's, that's, that's the first thing, all right. And then he says, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, and there, you see, he uses the bishop word, overseer, bishop. So he's talking about elders, and he says, since an overseer, because now he's homing in on his function relative to the whole church. This is, this is what a man has got to be like in order to be recognised as a leader of a church. And uh, he says, okay, he must be blameless. And he says it again. 
So now there's going to be another list. The first, he must be blameless in the sense that family life must be in order, no question. But now there's another list. He must be blameless in another way. And what follows now is twofold. We're going to see, firstly, what an elder mustn't be. There's what mustn't be true of him, if he's to be recognised as an elder, but then there's what he must be. So you've got what shouldn't be the case, and then you've got what should be the case. So let's, let's, let's just go through um, what he mustn't be. Okay. First of all, he says, not overbearing. All right. Now, the, the Greek word here is orthades, and it comes from autos, which means self, and hadomai, which means to please. And our word hedonistic, you know, people who just live for their own pleasure, our word hedonistic comes from this word. And it's, it, it's, it's talking about someone who's dominated by self-interest. Uh, you know, there, there are people who are obsessed with themselves. Um, you know, all they can think of is what they want, what they think, their ideas, whatever. And the, these are the people who arrogantly assert their will over other people regardless of any other consideration. So these are people who are, you know, it's like self-obsessed, they're strong characters. Not that there's anything wrong with being a strong character in itself, but the, these people, they are self-pleasing, they're overbearing. They don't respect other people. All they can think of is how other people need to listen to them and do what they say. Orthades, uh, self-pleasing people, they're full of their own opinions, they're full of their own ideas, and they are immovable from them. So people like this are uncorrectable. And, you know, in order to be an elder, someone needs to be approachable and correctable. So therefore, shouldn't be, mustn't be overbearing. Now, the next one mustn't be quick-tempered. Orgilos, prone to anger. And we get the word orgy from this. Now, our word orgy is prone to something else. But the, the whole point is, it's, it's the idea of someone getting carried away someone who loses control of themselves. And so the point is, um, you know, sort of, you know, there, there are people who get angry and show it very quickly. Well, that discounts you as an elder. It, it's simply no good having someone who, you know, has a record, everybody knows, put him under pressure and he's going to blow his top. Because being an elder will put you under every pressure you can possibly imagine and some you've never even thought of. It's only when you get there you realise that some of these pressures actually exist. So you've got to know that this is someone who is, you know, in control. They're, they're a calm person. doesn't mean they never get cross. The Bible does say be angry but sin not. But the whole point is, with be angry but sin not, you don't let the sun go down on your wrath. You see, you're totally in control of it. So anyone who is subject to, you know, like getting angry and bad moods and stuff like that, that would discount them, you know, there they, they just wouldn't be any point having someone like that as a, an elder. And then you get given to drunkenness, that kind of speaks for itself. I mean, you know, every, you know, so, oh, you know, I need, I need a bit of help here, I need to go and get a bit of wisdom, a bit of counsel, you know, and he's, you know, he's flat out with a couple of bottles lying around. I mean, obviously, it speaks for himself, you know, it's no use having someone who's, you know, sort of prone to getting drunk, is it? Um, then he says, violent. You know, I mean, some of these you think, why, why did he even need to put them in? Isn't it pretty obvious? Um, violent. Uh, plectes is the Greek word. It's the word we get plectrum from, and it means a striker. This is talking about someone that not only will they get cross, <laughs> they'll, they'll put one on you. They'll whack you. 
you know, they'll slap you around. I mean, you know, can you imagine? I mean, you know, this this might make Bible studies exciting when they're doing it, but can you imagine? You know, you get slapped around when you don't agree with, <laughs> with the elder. You know, so Paul is obviously saying, look, and you know, anyone in any way prone to violence is, you know, obviously is just no good for being an elder. It's pretty pretty obvious. I might not, if I'd have been Paul writing this, I probably wouldn't have even thought to put that in because it's self-obvious, you know. But having said that, you know, sort of like you've only got to look at the kingdom of God where anything goes and maybe it did need to be in there anyway. Um, okay, and then the, the, the last thing that he says here that you mustn't be uh, to be an elder is pursuing dishonest gain. Now, the Greek word here is ashrokerdes and it means base gain. Um, it, do, it, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, sort of like, you know, you know, someone who's, you know, has got a job on the side as a bank robber. What, what it means is, well, I mean, that, that would be included if you had someone actually getting money dishonestly. But what it means is that someone who, who, who's after money for all the wrong reasons. You know, it's, yeah, it's the old money, sex and power thing, isn't it? Money is power. And, you know, they're, they you know, they there are some people that they're after money because of the power that it gives them. Now, you can have some people, they're after money because of the power it gives them. They might not actually be having very much money at all, but they might still be under its power. You know, can you see what I mean? So the, the whole point is you're looking for someone who is absolutely in control of money. Money is not in any way at all in control of them. They're going to be people who are generous to a fault. Um, but obviously, it's, it's worth bearing in mind as well that, you know, the vast majority of elders are going to have secular jobs. You know, I mean, yeah, there is the Ephesian for pastor-teacher who has the ministry wider than one particular church. And when Paul writes to Timothy, he talks about the elders worthy of double honour who labour in preaching and teaching. And he's thinking there, obviously, of, of, of the ones who not only are recognised as elders in their own church, but have a wider ministry, so they get sent out more widely. So, you know, very often, there's just no time to earn your living at a secular job and do that as well. But the vast majority of elders are just going to have ordinary jobs. They're not going to be the pastor teacher. They're not going to be a Bible teacher like the Ephesians 4 guy. And so therefore, you could have a situation where very possibly, um, you know, sort of like, you know, you were, you know, looking at someone and thinking, oh, you know, well, I wonder if, you know, the Lord wants them to be an elder. But you know full well that, say, they've got their own business. And the first thing that happens to anyone who comes into the church new is gets the business card. And the bloke's trying to sell him something. <laughs> do, do you remember? It was, we, we had a visitor a while ago, do you remember? And, you know, sort of for the duration that he and his family came, there wasn't a Sunday went by that he wasn't trying to sell us the product for which he was a salesman. Well, OK, bless him. But it's no use having someone like that. It probably makes him a very good salesman, but it's no good for elders, is it? Can you see what I mean? Because there are some people that, OK, yeah, you, you do your job to get money, and there's nothing dishonourable about that, okay? And obviously, if you've got your own, you know, your own business or something like that. But there are some people, they just don't know where business stops and the rest of life kicks in. Yeah, you see what I mean? And when you've got people all the time mixing business with pleasure, you know, they've always got an eye open to make a buck. Now, when you're not in church, I'd say that's absolutely fine, but not in church. And so, therefore... Uh, someone could use the fact that they were an elder to actually be getting an, an unfair advantage 
in regards to their business. So that would that would um, you know sort of like come come in you know in that as well. So there, there's a few things, and of course the Timothy list is much longer, but uh, we're, we're just doing the Titus one. So that's that's the sort of stuff he mustn't be. So what must he be then? Well, in verse eight, Paul says rather. So not like that, but like that, right? So not like that, but rather like that. Okay, and he says. And I've lost it. Yes, he must be hospitable. Now, that's uh, philoxenos, and it means the love of strangers. Even xenos, a stranger, hence xenophobia. All right, if you don't like people who are different to you, you're xenophobic. And it means the love of strangers. So what, what you've got here, you're looking for someone who is a welcoming person. A friendly person. There, there are some people, and I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're wonderful brothers, and, and that, but they're officious. As you know, what officious? They're, they're standoffish. They don't know how to relate to other people. Now, okay, that's fine. It doesn't mean that you know they're not you know, you know, following the law. But it's no use people like that being elders, because they're the sort of people who become like you know, it's it's all very leader led. You know, they they stop being a brother, and suddenly they're the leader. If you know, in fact, in a lot of churches, it's a basic qualification for being a leader. Sadly. You know, because there's this almost military thing, the officers don't mix with the privates, if you see what I mean. And so it's tremendously important, you know, that someone is, a, you know, what you call a friendly, you know, easygoing chap who gets on with people. You know, it's no use having someone who is, is awkward, you know, doesn't have social skills. And, uh, you know, it's quite funny, you know, I mean, sort of sometimes when you do meet people, it's not funny, it's sad actually, but sometimes one does meet people, you know, in leadership, in in Christian churches, and I mean, they they you know they often don't have the basic social skills. You know, they're so caught up with their own leadership that that, that they you know smile and a bit of chit chat. I mean, they they wouldn't know what that was because they all the time they've got the uniform on. You see what I mean? That's absolutely no good. You need a, a kind of casual, kind of friendly chap, and of course, in this you know hospitality, open home, open home. Now it doesn't you know it doesn't mean that it's literally a twenty four hour service. Well, there actually is. No, but I mean, obviously, within limits, people have got to make sure that, you know, you don't ever abuse people who throw their home open, obviously. But the point is, basically, it's got to be someone with an open home, you know, that revolving front door. Tremendously important. Uh, you know, and obviously, if, if, if you're going to relate to someone as an elder, then, you know, the point is that, yeah, you know, there may be times when you need to access him, um, you know, at some quite unsociable hours, or, you know, so, you know, you've got to know that, that if, you know, sort of like, you know, if you knock on the door, you're not going to get, oh, what you want? Look at the time. Look what you want. So, you've got a welcome, whatever. That's tremendously important, okay. Now then, the second thing, uh, he says, someone who loves what is good. Philagathos, philos again, loving, and agathos means goodness. It means a wholesome influence. So, you know, basically, you know, sort of like, you know, he's not going to have some secret life that if you found out about it, you know, you'd, you'd be absolutely appalled or something. Or there's not going to be some glaring aspect to his life, which is, a, you know, a potentially corrupting influence on other people. 
Goodness, that's dreadful. My Star Trek reference there and the tape stopped. Yeah, so obviously it doesn't apply to Star Trek there. It's all right for elders to like Star Trek. Oh, but any unsavory or unwholesome influences would, would, would be out of place. So, so someone who loves what is good. And then uh, the, the next one is self-controlled. Uh, in some translations, it's master of himself. Now, this, this word here is, is sophron. And it comes from sozo, which is the word, you know, the verb to save. That's where we get salvation from. Okay, sozo. And freen, which is the mind. And it means a saved mind or a sound mind. So what you've got here is that it's, it's, it's important that, that, that he's sober-minded, that he's in control of his own mind, that he's sensible, that he's rational, that, that he's a biblical thinker who acts accordingly. That, you know, there are some people, and I mean, you know, they're, you know, they're great people, they're wonderful people, but they're all over the place. You know, can you see what I mean? A bit like, you know, so if you blow up a balloon and then let it go, and the balloon goes, you know. Now, it's no, if, if, if you've got someone who's prone to that sort of thing, or, or some people are prone to real flights of fancy, yeah, can you see what I mean by that? That's no good. You need a, a good, sensible thinker, okay? And then he must be upright, uh, dikaios, and that's from the Greek uh, dikai, which means a custom or rule or right. And it, it basically it means someone who keeps the rules. And uh, the best way to think of this, the Bible, someone who always goes by the book. It's no use having someone who wants to not go by the rules. You see what I mean? Cutting corners in a way that actually goes against what the Bible teaches. So, honest, just, fair-minded, morally sound. And uh, holy is the next one. Now, different, different words for holiness in, in, in the New Testament, the main one being hagiasmos. This isn't that, this is hosius. And it specifically means the, the kind of, um, sort of an equal regard for grace and truth. It means someone who, who kind of, that, that, that's sort of built into their nature. And, of course, it is important, grace and truth. They go together. I mean, you know, in John's Gospel, we're told the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And, of course, these are tremendously important balances. Um, in Ephesians, Paul says, speaking the truth in love. And, of course, there are two ways to, you know, go wrong here. There are some who, you know, some <coughs> brothers, they emphasize the truth quite rightly, but there's no grace about them, there's no love about them. It's harsh, hard truth. That's no good. They desperately need grace to be in their lives. But also, and this is probably more, you know, what you're going to find in this country today, is Christians who very hot on graciousness, which is great, but not too keen on truth. And of course, the, the, the sad thing is, the way it gets considered, that if someone gets upset by the truth, then it means you've been ungracious to them. Now, someone might get upset because you've been ungracious to them, but sometimes people just get upset because the truth upsets them. You see what I mean? So you've got to have someone who has a semblance of balance, so this is built into their understanding. 
It's not grace, but never mind about the truth. Let's just keep everyone happy and just be nice to each other, and that's the end of the story. But on the other hand, you don't want someone who's, well, all truth, and this is what the Bible says, and slap, 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 bash, bash, bash. You see what I mean? It's got to be that balance of grace and truth. And then finally, disciplined. Encrates, and this is from kratos, which means strength. And it means someone, this is sort of like the idea of meekness, like a, a broken stallion, who's got tremendous strength, but controls it, doesn't let its strength go wild. And so, therefore, it's someone who, whatever powers God has bestowed upon them, whatever character, whatever ability, in, in regards to what, that they've got it under control. That they don't just take whatever they're able to do and just mow people down with it. And often there are people who are clearly the sort of people who could be good leaders, good godly leaders, but sadly they're in that position where they'll just kind of just mow people down. They just walk all over people, usually not intentionally, but they're just oblivious. They don't have that sensitivity to gauge the effect of what they're doing is having on other people. And it's tremendously important that someone who's going to be an elder, you know, sort of like is able to do that. That they won't just railroad you, you know, that's, that's, that's so important. So obviously that's a kind of the general picture. And obviously with elders like that, you're not really going to go far wrong. It's what Jesus was like. Obviously he is like it in perfection. Obviously, any elder, because they're a sinner, is not going to be like it in perfection. But broadly, that's the point, broadly, this is what someone needs to be like in order to be, um, you know, sort of recognised as an elder. But it's the next bit now about what the function of an elder that Paul really homes in on. Remember, he's reminding Titus, this is what Titus has got to be passing on to the church teaching them this is you know these are the qualities this is what eldership needs to be like and it's 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 this next bit that uh, Paul really the rest of the letter is building on this and it's in verse 9 and it's this he says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it now, there's going to be a surprise in there, but let's, let's, let's go through it. So, we're looking here at the role of elders now, their function, we've seen their characters, but their specific function of ensuring that the Word of God is faithfully taught, is lived out in the church, and that it's not gone against. These three aspects we're going to see. Faithfully taught lived out and not gone against. Okay. Now, there, there, there are three aspects. Firstly, obviously, the elder himself must stick to the truth like glue. He must cleave to it. He must be inseparable from it. Hold firmly. The idea here is he's not going to let go of the truth of the Word of God. What he knows to be true, that is it. It's non-negotiable. Okay. So that's the first thing, that he's going to hold it in an iron grip, and there's not going to be compromise over that which is clearly what the Bible teaches. We're not talking about areas where we've all got different understandings. We're not talking about that. But the broad strokes, the fundamentals, particularly anything <coughs> that relates to behaviour, He's got to absolutely hold in an iron grip. <clears throat> now, the second thing <clears throat> is that 
he must teach it to the church so that the church sticks to it like glue as well. See what I mean? So, okay, obviously he's got to know the truth and live by it himself, but he has to be able to pass this on to others in the church, okay? And uh, so when it says here, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine, the, the, the Greek word here is parakalio, and then para, which means to the side, and kalio, which means to call. And it means that he's calling people to his side in regards to what he's teaching. So there's a sense in which he's saying, look, this is what I do, come and join me, come and join me in this. It's, it's entreating, it's beseeching. It's, it's calling people all the time to be aligning themselves with the teaching of the Bible in regards to, well, whatever, the, the whole, you know, wide counsel of God. And, of course, what we see is that the call is to, that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Now, doctrine, didache, teaching, simple as that, that which you teach. So the ideas, the concepts, in the Bible we have what God thinks. And what God thinks is what constitutes his teaching. And so what God thinks is right, okay, what God thinks is what matters, and in the Bible we have that. So obviously teaching. But it's got to be sound teaching. And the Greek word for sound here is hygienu, and it's where we get our word hygiene from. It means healthy. It means healthy. And of course the point is we know that, you know, if you, if you don't wash your hands and then eat, you can, you know, you're being unhygienic. And you, you can poison yourself, you can get all sorts of ailments in your body physically because you're taking in unhygienic food or you're taking food in unhygienically because you haven't washed your hands, for instance. Now, in the same way that you can get food that gets contaminated, you can get teaching that is contaminated. It's contaminated by error. It's contaminated by false doctrine. Now, it probably won't damage your body but it will damage you spiritually. And this is one of the things that elders, as guardians of the church, are really, you know, sort of there to make sure that the church remains safe from the spiritually unhygienic stuff. And there is so much of it. And I've, you know, said it more times than I can remember. The Bible warns against one thing more than anything else. There's one issue, there's one warning that the Bible gives out which is far greater than its warning against any other things and it's the warning against false teaching. More verses, more space is given in the New Testament to warning about the dangers of, of false teaching than any other subject. Doesn't mean there aren't other dangers, of course there are other dangers, but false doctrine is one of the most dangerous. And so that is why elders have a responsibility to make sure that they are passing on sound doctrine. Okay, so we've seen that he must stick to the truth like glue for himself. He must pass that truth on. He must teach it to the church. And <clears throat> he must make sure that he's not mixing it with unhygienic stuff. He must guard the church from that. But then the third aspect here is it says that encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now this word refute is interesting. It doesn't mean, in, in English, the word refute would by and large simply mean to demonstrate that something is incorrect. So let's say someone tries to bring a false teaching into the church, 
okay? And, uh, you know, the, the, the elder will refute it, demonstrate from the Bible why it's incorrect. That's what the English word would mean. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word here is elenchu, and it's the Greek word for conviction of sin. And what Paul is saying here is he says that when it's a case of wrong doctrine, of false teaching coming in, then the role of elders is not merely to demonstrate from Scripture why this thing is false and to refute it in that sense, but to do so in such a way that it convicts of sin whoever is trying to bring that false doctrine in. Now that's, that, that's a bit heavy. You know, we could do without that, can't we? Our nice liberal ways and that, and, you know, sort of like that makes life a little bit, you know, kind of controversial, doesn't it? Now, I'm not talking about any of us could inadvertently end up bringing in ideas that later on we chuck it around and think, oh, uh, oh yeah, no, that was wrong, wasn't it? I'm not talking about that. We're talking here about people who come in with an agenda of false doctrine, and they're pushing it. It's what we're talking about. We're talking about the blatant stuff here. And of course, the importance of this conviction of sin bit is because where you get false teaching, let's ask the question, why is false teaching so dangerous? Why is it the thing that we need to be on our guard against more than anything else? What, what is it about false teaching that, that, that is so potentially damaging? And of course, the answer is, every false teaching, there's something in it for the sinful nature. You see, everything of true teaching, what the Bible says, is always against the sinful nature, and it always leads us into holiness. Now, the thing about false teaching is that false teaching is when we want a get-out. We want to get round something in the Bible that we want to hang on to. There's a, a sin, there's a something, <clears throat> our ideas as opposed to God's ideas, and we want to hang on to what we want instead of what he wants. And that's why false teaching comes in. With false doctrine, there is always something in it for the sinful nature. And so, therefore, that's why it is important that you do literally, you know, sort of like have to have this conviction of sin to demonstrate that if someone is really pushing a false teaching, then it's important that they are given the opportunity, not just in being shown from Scripture that what they're saying is wrong, but giving an understanding of what it is in them, in their sinful nature, or in anyone's sinful nature, that would actually want <coughs> a false teaching to be true, as opposed to what the Bible actually teaches. That's the whole point. Why would we ever want something that was false to be true? Well, because our sinful natures don't like what is true. You see what I mean? And so, it's tremendously important here. Um, he, he talks here about people, <coughs> he talks about the sound doctrine, and then he says, refute those who oppose it. And this opposition, the Greek word there is anti-lego, and it means to say against, it means to contradict. And what he's talking about here are people who you've got the clear teaching of the Word of God, and yet still they contradict it. So you've got the picture here that, you know, here's a church trying to grow in its knowledge of God, trying to grow in its understanding of the Scriptures, and, you know, I mean, you know, sort of like all the brothers, but maybe especially anyone who's been raised up to be an elder perhaps is, you know, doing Bible study and teaching people. And yet here you've got the contradictors. doesn't matter what you do, you get challenged. Everything is questioned. Every, you know, can you see what I mean? <clears throat> I'm not talking about honest questioning, but people who just go against what the Bible says. They're Christians, but almost for the sake of it. And, uh, you know, so you, you, people like that, 
really do have to ultimately be dealt with because, you know, the damage that they inflict on a church is really quite severe, okay? So, uh, again, we're not talking about people with honest questions. We're not talking about the fact that any of us can get in our heads what turns out to be a funny idea and we think, oh, yeah, no, that wasn't too bright, was it? Sorry about that. No, we're talking about people who have an agenda of false teaching and they're pushing it. It's absolutely vital that elders can deal with them in the, um, you know, in the way that, uh, that, that Paul says here. And what he does now, and this just now gets heavier and heavier, all right, because he describes these people now. <clears throat> and um, in verse 10 he says, for there are many rebellious people. He's talking about Christians. Mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. Now we know the circumcision party were Christians. There's no question about that. But they cause no end of problems in the churches. They're spreading their false teachings around and they cause division and stuff like that. And, you know, Paul was had to be really tough with them. And in the same way, when you get people like this, they got a false teaching in their head and to them it's important. You know, and they, they, they can't rest until they've got other Christians, you know, believing what they do. All the time they're reacting, they're pushing their agenda, their false teaching. And, uh, you know, and Paul says, look, he says, they must be silenced. And again, when Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, you know, I left you in Ephesus that you might command certain men not to, you know, sort of uh, teach false teaching. You know, you cannot have false teaching being put into a church. It, you know, it, it, the damage it does. So it, it must be, be silenced. And he says, because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that they ought not to teach. And this is the problem. When false teaching gets in, you can get some people who think, oh yeah, I like that. I say, oh yeah, I go with that. And then suddenly, the person introducing the false teaching, they've got someone on their side, haven't they? And they might get a wife believing it, or a husband, but not the wife. And it introduces disunity, even amongst families in the church. And it is absolutely dreadful. It's one of the most dangerous things. And it's absolutely vital that, you know, that we don't permit it to happen. And uh, in, in verse 12, he, go, and he gets really strong here. Remember, he's talking now, by definition, to, to Titus, who is in Crete. So these are Cretan converts, okay. Now, look what Paul says now. Even one of their own prophets have said, and now Paul quotes a Cretan poet. And the quote is this, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. So he says, look, you know, this is what those people are like. You, you know, you, you've got to watch out for them. And he says, this testimony is true. Now, hang on, how do we square this with being loving and gracious? Well, it does square with being loving and gracious. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know what you're up against in order to defend yourself against it. And the problem is... That, and especially today, I mean, they were prone to it then as well, but I think we are more so just where our society is. And especially, you know, sort of like, you know, in, in the church, this incredible pressure to be nice all the time. You know, sort of say a critical word about anyone, and you're being judgmental. Now then, there's a wrong way to be critical of people. Yeah, of course there's wrong judgment and wrong motives and all that. But the point is, if we can't honestly look at certain people and assess the potential danger. Well, we might as well just lay out the red carpet and let Satan get every deceived believer going in the church. If they're not going to be countered, it will just be open season on the truth. 
as simple as that. We've seen it through the years, haven't we? Goodness, sometimes the chaos we've had, the hurt we've had, when people have pushed a wrong teaching, a wrong agenda, it always comes to tears. And it's absolutely vital that we know how to protect ourselves against it. And it's important to understand what the role here um, elders have. But then look what, what, what Paul says. He says, therefore, rebuke them sharply. Now that's, that's an amazing thing to say. Rebuke here is elenshu, as in verse 9, all right? Refute them. But he actually says, do it sharply. So he doesn't just say, you know, kind of like, tell them off, put them straight. This word sharply, apotomus, means abruptly. It means to be curt with someone. It means to give someone short thrift. It's actually from the Greek word to cut. Now then, cut. The word of God is sort of the spirit, isn't it? Now, I'm not talking about over the slightest thing. We cut each other to shreds with the Bible. It's not what we're talking here about at all. We're talking here about dealing with people who have an agenda. They are doing, they are serious about introducing false teaching into the church, right? And when that happens, then the word of God has got to be wielded like a sword, okay? In other words, rebuke them sharply. There is a time when an elder has to give someone a rocket. That was Robert's phrase, give someone a rocket. They need a rocket, he says. And, uh, you know, we, who's going to do it, him or me? And, and it, it, it's, you know, but yeah, it's... Now, obviously, let me say as well, if you had a situation where elders were doing this a lot, it'd be ridiculous. I mean, you know, I mean, we're not talking about that, but we're talking about in the exceptional circumstance when it's needed. It's no use shrinking back from it, or these people will succeed in what they're trying to do. And what they're trying to do is to deceive and therefore divide the church. Now, why? Why rebuke them sharply? Well, so they will be sound in the faith. The first reason is you're hoping to bring them to their senses. Now, if you think about it, to be in a position where, you know, sort of like someone is, you know, kind of, they know, you know, this is what, you know, they know. And the whole church is saying, well, that's not what the Bible says, that's not what the Bible says, all right? Now, that ought to be enough to make any of us think, well, crumbs, 99%, I'm wrong then. But these people, no, it doesn't stop them. They pay no heed. Not for them in an abundance of counsellors is, is, is safety. In fact, the more you're ranged against them, the stronger they get. Yeah, we've seen this, haven't we? And so, obviously, the first thing you're wanting is for them to have a chance to repent. Well, and indeed, maybe they will. Uh, he, he goes on, he says that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or the commands of those who reject the truth. So it could be anything, you know, sort of, but the whole point is, that's firstly what you're wanting, that they'll get themselves squared out and realise, you know, well, hey, you know, can it be right? I'm the only one pushing this and, you know, sort of everyone else seems to be pretty set against it. Uh, you know, sort of, so you're wanting them to come to repentance, but of course the problem is that something else might happen. We're talking now about when the time is to step in and say, no more. And I've often said it in the past, at the end of the day, an elder, he's an immovable object. Where, where there's misbehaviour, where there's people with an agenda, 
they will not get past the Elder. That's why they get so mad with the Elder, isn't it? Because they won't get past the Elder. And of course, if they don't repent, then what have you got? You've got World War III. And of course, in a later study, we'll see how Paul goes on to warn a divisive person once, then a second time, after that have nothing to do with him. Well, crumbs, that's pretty heavy stuff. But yeah, sometimes that is what it eventually leads to. And we have seen people, and they've gone. But, but the good news is they've gone. We haven't gone, they've gone. And that's the whole point. When they realise that they're not going to succeed, there's just no way that they can do this, then they'll go away. If they won't repent, then the only safety for the church is that they go away, sadly. But uh, we'll, we'll be back to that in a later study, okay. And uh, Paul, Paul says, again talking of these people, he says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. And of course, what, what you kind of get here is that when, when people are on these crusades, you do tend to sort of see that, um, you know, that it's, it's all very paranoid. And it's all, you know, like one of these like spy novels, you know, and things like that. Uh, you know, I remember back in the early days when, uh, you know, when we had sort of like, you know, actually, you know, little groups who were trying to do their takeover of, of the church. And you discover, like, for instance, all these secret meetings that were going on. You know, when you suddenly realise, you know, there's been this, this Bible study going on for a few weeks now at someone's house, and, well, only some people in the church were told about it. And, you know, and then you hear about it, and then you make a few inquiries, and blow me down, what's it about? Well, it's, it's you know, so it's, it's showing how the elders are trying to dominate. It's all against the elders, isn't it, you see? Because they're trying to get people on their side, you see? And they're paranoid, and they can't see straight. You know, they, they, you know, they just end up in a kind of a, 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 a la-la land, you know, a kind of a fantasy. And, and they're not able anymore to see things as they really are. And, uh, you know, sort of like their, you know, their, their minds and their consciences go out of kilter and they just end up in a, you know, kind of like a, a you know, a fantasy world. And then in verse 16 it says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So he's saying, you know, he's not saying here they're not Christians, but, you know, they're not in what they're doing. They're not in fellowship with God. Obviously, they insist that God's leading them because they're the answer to the errors in the church, aren't they? They're, they're the ones who can see what, what's wrong here. And, uh, but, but by their very attitudes and by their very words and actions, they, they prove that they're just totally out of fellowship with God. And, and the next bit now is, is again, uh, it's, it's surprising in the sense that this kind of knocks us back. This makes us think, well, you know, how do you square this with graciousness? Sometimes I think we need to rethink our understanding of what love actually is. Because look what Paul now says about them. They are. He's talking about Christians here. <coughs> he says they are detestable disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Now obviously if they repent all that would change. But he's saying as it stands because they've got this agenda, because they're being rebellious against the truth, this is what they are. Now detestable deluctus. This is the Greek word for the abomination of desolation. It's one of the strongest Greek words there are and it describes something that is utterly disgusting. Abominable. It's, 
It's a heck of a thing to say about people. And Paul says it. He says, you know, God looks down on these children of his. And they are his children. And he loves them. He loves them. But at the same time as he loves them, he's disgusted with what they're doing. God is disgusted at false teaching and the division that it causes. He's disgusted with Christians who push their agendas. And it's just, you know, and he longs for their repentance. But crumbs, that, that's how God thinks about it. Wow, that's how Paul thought about it. Well, if God thinks that, then we can think that, can't we? It's not unloving. It's not ungracious. It's the truth. It's the truth. And then he says they are disobedient. Now, this is, this is interesting. Apithes. It's the negative of the Greek word pytho, which is the verb to persuade. And this literally means that they are unpersuadable. What it means is, it doesn't matter how clearly you show them from the Bible that what they're saying is wrong, or what they're doing is wrong. doesn't matter how clear you make it, they are unpersuadable. They have always got an argument to get round what the Bible says. And what's interesting about this is that if, if you go to... Um, Let's bring in the Hebrews 13 verses. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. This uh, <laughs> amazingly badly translated verse. And um, verse 17, where he says, obviously it's talking about elders, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is one of the ultimate verses that people use to show, look, yeah, leaders are in charge of the church. They're, they're the big chiefs, all right? Now, that's, that's, that's just, first of all, in the NIV, it's got submit to their authority. The word authority is not in the Greek text. They've just added that for effect, which is really naughty, all right? But we've got obey your leaders twice. Obey your leaders and then obey them. And then we've got submit. All right. Now, what's interesting is that this word obey, there, there is a Greek word that means to obey someone because they're in charge of you. Like children, obey your parents. Obey the government. But that's not the Greek word here. That's not the Greek word here. The Greek word here is python. And it means to persuade. And elsewhere in the New Testament, it's normally... Uh, translated as to be persuaded, to trust, or to have faith in. And what he's saying here to the believers, he says, be willing to be persuaded by your leaders, by the elders. So he's talking about an openness to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now this word submit, again, there are words in the New Testament which means to submit to authority. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's not the Greek word here. This Greek word, this is the only occurrence in the New Testament of it, all right? And it's eupaiko. And it does mean to submit, but it doesn't mean to submit to authority. It means to submit to greater strength. So if an army invaded you and you knew that you couldn't possibly beat them, you would submit to them, you'd surrender. That's what this word means. 
<coughs> and basically, what he's saying here, and remember, we've just seen that these people that he's talking about, he said that they're um, unpersuadable. And he uses the negative of this word pytho. So Paul says the trouble with these Christians is they won't be persuaded. They won't respond to what the truth is. They won't respond to leadership, all right? And then the writer to the Hebrew says, be willing to be persuaded by your leaders. And so what it's showing with these people is that they do not want leaders. They want to be the leaders. You see what I mean? And of course their main problem, if there is someone in the church that they can't get round, that person becomes their main problem. And that's why what the writer to the Hebrews is saying is, look, he says, look, just be willing to be persuaded by your leaders. And he says, they'll win. In a fight, they'll win. And he says, basically, don't keep coming out fighting against the elders. That's what this word, you know, verse means. And he's saying that precisely because he's perfectly aware there are people in the church that all the time they want to fight. They've got their issues, they've got their... And if they're going to fight, who are the, who's the fight going to be with? Well, it's going to be with the person who represents leadership. It's going to be with whoever they can't get round, i.e. it's going to be the elders. And so that's why here he's saying that these people are unpersuadable. And that's why ultimately you can't do anything with them. When someone is not persuadable by the clear truth, basically there's no further you can go with them. All right. And, um, and then he says, lastly, that they are unfit for doing anything good. And um, a docimos. Docimos means approved. A is the negative. And what he's saying here, it's a quality control term. He says, basically, these people, they failed the test. You know, you know you've, you've, you've done quality control, they won't conform. So therefore, there's really nothing else you can do with them. And, you know, if you're on a production line or something, you've got the quality control. And quality control is a good way of thinking part of the function of an elder. An elder is there for quality control. And of course, the point is that if something comes down the line and it doesn't pass the test, it's rejected. You know, and, and that is ultimately what has to happen with these people. And as I say, Paul does go on to say later on in the letter, warn them once or twice after that, have nothing to do with them. So the point is, these people, they have the spiritual show on, um, you know, all, all the prayers, all the gifts of the Spirit, all the Christian good works and stuff like that. But God rejects it all until such time as they lay their rebellion down and submit to what the Scripture says and submit to the leadership and the consensus of the church, until they do that, they really don't have any future. Because basically what we're talking about here is out-and-out -out rebellion. We're not talking about the getting it wrong that we all do every now and then, you know, when we all have little fights. We're not talking about that. We're talking here about people who have an agenda and uh, of, you know, kind of introducing false teaching, whatever it is. And through the years, we've, we've seen it over various things, uh, the, the worst examples again and again have been feminism, um, you know, that, that will just keep coming because we live in this country at this particular time. But uh, we've seen it in regards to other things as well. And uh, yeah, goodness, it's, uh, you know, so Paul is saying, Titus, this is how you handle these people, this is what you've got to be aware of, and you've got to pass this on to other people in the church 
um, who are likely to be recognised and raised up as elders. So in some ways, with all that, you've got to say, well, you know, thank, thank heavens it don't happen much, but when it does, goodness, poor old Titus and poor old elders. And, uh, you know, because Titus had to make these people aware that that is part and parcel of what you're taking on if you are open and willing to be recognised as an elder. Right, we will uh, carry on next time. <laughs>